Hello, Eamon. <laughs> hello, Thomas. <laughs> and hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the very first conflicted... Whoop. My Apple Watch was talking to me. <laughs> That's technical error number one. How many will we have during this very first conflicted live Q&A? First of all, everyone uh, who joined us today, welcome. We're sorry we're running a bit late. Uh, we had a little technical hiccup, but we're, uh, we're back in action. We're certainly delighted to have you all here. Before we get started, we have a bit of housekeeping. First of all, you'll notice the way this live streaming software works is that you can see us, but we cannot see you. <laughs> So if you have a question for us, drop it into the chat uh, on the right side of your screen. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure I don't have to say this because conflicted listeners are all very civilized and polite. <laughs> but we do ask that if you're sharing anything in the chat, keep it respectful. We love a lively debate, but please let's be cordial. That's the one thing about conflicted. We talk about deep subjects, but always with a friendly tone. Uh, the next thing is you'll notice on your screen that you have the ability to call in. However, we ask that you do not call in as we will not answer it and it will disrupt the flow of the show. Uh, finally, the show will last one hour. We're going to start off, uh, Eamon and I, by discussing recent news from Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Uh, and then we'll move on to answering some of your questions. So do share questions in the chat. We will be able to get to some of them at the end of the hour. Uh, Radio, that's it. Let's dive in. Eamon, Turkey. As of this recording, Turkish troops appear poised to invade northern Syria in force. Uh, they've been bombarding Kurdish militia positions across the border. Uh, and all of this follows a bomb attack, a pretty brutal bomb attack, uh, in Istanbul on the 13th of November, which President Erdogan has blamed on the YPG, a mainly Kurdish militia operating in northern Syria. Will Turkey invade? And what's Erdogan's endgame in Syria? Um, it looks like it. It looks like there will be a limited um, land incursion by the Turkish uh, forces into the Kurdish areas of uh, northern Syria. Uh, the trouble here is, um, you know, the, the, there is a good assessment by some credible uh, intelligence analysts in Europe that the act that took place in uh, Istanbul, that terrorist act, was actually the work of a a small rogue element uh, from uh, the PKK uh, YPG uh, nexus. And the aim is to provoke something. So the PKK are the Kurdish groups that operate inside Turkey, are resisting the Turkish government, and the YPG are in Syria. Yeah, but they are almost like, in a, you know, uh, more or less like in having a close alliance. They are, you know, from within the same um, ideological uh, you know, uh, makeup, if we can uh, call it this way. Oh, I lost you there. I don't know if, uh, I, if everyone else lost you. <laughs> <laughs> Still alive. <laughs> Still alive. So, um, so, so, so in a sense, you know, the, the, the problem here we have is that the Syrian, oh, so the Syrian regime is not going to like the idea of a Turkish incursion but they also like the idea of a Turkish incursion at the same time because it is going to cause um, mayhem for the Kurds who are allied with the Americans. It is a very complicated situation, and Erdogan is already trying to court Assad in order to create that pincer movement at some point in the future. But for now, uh, whatever Turkish uh, military step that's going to happen will be limited. And Erdogan, I mean, his, his, his primary purpose in invading northern Syria, I mean, you read things like he wants to create an enclave within Turkey really to, to re-export Syrian migrants. He's sick of all the Syrian migrants in Turkey. He wants to send them back. Is that, is that what he mainly wants to do? Or is this mainly about, uh, you know, neutralizing the threat as he sees it from Kurdish militias in general and Kurdish separatism, Kurdish nationalism? Or is it both? Well, remember that always strong men, they need a, um, you know, how can I say a bogeyman in order to scare their people to believe that, look, I'm protecting you from a real specter of terrorism here. Um, and unfortunately, that terror attack 
that took place in Istanbul really played into Erdogan's hand because he is running for elections or re-elections. And he is trying to portray himself as a strong man that Turkey needs in order to protect the Turks from the, you know, the shadowy specter of terrorism. Um, and therefore, maybe by doing so, he is creating more terrorism in order actually to justify, you know, himself remaining in power, unfortunately. It's an old story. Huh? Speaking of strong men, uh, since we're talking about um, about uh, Erdogan, we might as well talk about Vladimir Putin in Russia, because Turkey and Russia at the moment are are also involved in a kind of very awkward dance over the over the Ukrainian issue. Um, and, uh, but it, it's tied to Syria because, you know, uh, Putin has asked Erdogan, please don't invade northern Syria. Russia is still, I understand, in northern Syria or in Syria, but perhaps a little bit preoccupied with Ukraine to do any uh, active um, operations on the ground in Syria. What is the relationship now, would you say, between Ankara and Moscow? Uh, and how is Erdogan trying to take advantage of Putin's invasion of the Ukraine and the geopolitical fallout of that invasion, uh, in, especially in the, in the run-up to these elections? Um, as usual, Erdogan is trying to play all parties and trying to be everything to everyone at the same time. Because he is seeing the opportunity here, he is the you know the uh, typical Machiavellian, um, you know, strong man looking at the opportunities, and the opportunities are presenting themselves from every angle. Um, he is looking at cheap uh, energy from uh, Russia. He is looking at um, uh, Turkey becoming the um, an arbitrage place uh, for energy, you know, from Asia, Russia to Europe, um, and this is where he wants to be, and so therefore. His relationship with Moscow is, you know, the carrot and the stick. In one hand, he is providing weapons to the Ukrainians. On the other hand, he is providing a channel for Putin's uh, money and money laundering machine to continue uh, working, as well as arbitrage uh, for the oil and gas that Russia want to sell on the open market. Well, you know, Turkey, what a it's a, it's a big beast. It has these huge geopolitical ambitions now, uh, well beyond uh, Anatolia, well beyond the Middle East. Uh, and it, it raises a, a question that one of our listeners, M. Agbebi, I hope I've got that right. He's at Harkonnen82 on Twitter. So he must be another Dune fan. <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> a man after uh, my He says heart. Turkey. <laughs> exactly. So M. Agbebi on Twitter asked, does Turkey have historically been a military powerhouse? What are their current aims and objectives to project power beyond their borders? Uh, in April of this year, The Economist wrote that Turkey and France, uh, after sparring in Libya, have also locked horns in West Africa, the Sahel, and the Maghreb, where Mr. Erdogan has challenged French influence by playing on France's image as a colonial aggressor. In Somalia, Erdogan faced off against Saudi Arabia and the UAE when they're spat with Qatar, which is friendly with Turkey spilled over into a proxy struggle in the Horn of Africa. I've also read that as Chinese investment in Africa is, has taken a wobble of late, Erdogan's trying to fill in the vacuum. So clearly Turkey uh, has big ambitions. What are those ambitions? What, what is his big vision? Because you, you framed it a bit like trying to keep the plate spinning, that kind of weird mobster gangster state he's got on the one hand, trying to get reelected on the other hand. But there is some serious geopolitical strategy as well. Of course, there is a geopolitical strategy and it centers around uh, three objectives. You know, the first objective is economic. Um, Turkey is in deep economic um, trouble and it needs to get itself out of it. You can't extricate yourself from economic troubles without having alliances. Um, and he is trying to repair some of the damage that happened uh, over the past decade. And that is starting by, um, you know, uh, causing up to uh, Moscow, causing up to Riyadh, causing up to Abu Dhabi. Um, and to some extent, causing up to Cairo also. While at the same time, uh, the second objective here is to become an uh, energy powerhouse. Uh, uh, Turkey is poor in terms of energy resources, but it has a geographic position which can benefit um, you know, the European, Middle Eastern, Russian, and Central Asian markets by actually being the conduit through you know, where the producers can actually pass, you know, uh, the um, uh, energy through Turkey to consumers. And, you know, therefore, the idea is that to use this as a political leverage. It didn't do Ukraine very well, but nonetheless, Turkey is trying, you know, to be the, uh, the arbiter, you know, and the middleman in this new 
um, post-Ukraine war uh, energy uh, geopolitics. Uh, and the third objective here is basically to become a powerhouse in terms of military hardware. Uh, the idea is that uh, Turkey is becoming better and better at military technology and they want to be, you know, the uh, the poor man's, um, you know, uh, exporter of weapons. Well, you know, it's funny, in, in season three of Conflicted, we took the broad view about Turkey going back to the Byzantine period. And in a way, Erdogan is trying to return Turkey uh, to that strange, awkward middleman uh, role it, the Byzantines played. The Ottomans were the strong man, but the Byzantines were sort of caught between worlds and they learned uh, to play very adroitly as a middleman between different competing powers. So maybe Erdogan is not actually an Ottomanist. <laughs> He's a Byzantinist. Possible, yeah. <laughs> uh, <ironic>. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned the economic problems that Turkey's been going through. Now, I'm going to have to push you on this a bit, Eamon, because in season two, you told us that Erdogan's economic policies were the reason for his political success. Uh, and you focused on that kind of public-private partnerships plan that he that he had, uh, which were allowing the government to build infrastructure and grow the economy without direct state control, but with the state benefiting from profit. So a kind of public private uh, you know, partnership. Now, something's gone wrong in that model. Inflation is rampant. These PPPSs, as they're called, PPPs are, are rife with corruption. So what, what do you think? Would you say now, three years later, that the Erdogan model isn't as robust as you thought? Always remember that strong men, unfortunately, when they see the economic success, they think that it was their miracle. It was their hands that created all of this. It's, it happened to Erdogan, it happened to Putin, and it happened to shipping. You know, all of these men, you know, came promising, you know, a lot of economic success. Uh, and actually, they achieved economic success because they did not interfere that much in the market. But then as soon as they saw, saw that the market is actually thriving, as soon as they started interfering, basically, you know, they just put obstacles rather than, you know, pave the way. And this is exactly what's happening in China, what's happening in Russia, and what's happening in Turkey at the moment. I read an interesting report on the Turkish economy because it's slightly bewildering. Oops. <laughs> it's slightly bewildering. Uh, uh, don't worry. Uh, with you know, a dear listener, dear viewer, in this case, you know, we're new to this live Q and A show, so <laughs> there'll be a couple of hiccups along the way. Yeah. Anyway, I read a report um, uh, about how, how economists are slightly baffled by the Turkish economy's performance because inflation is insane, like eighty percent and even higher at times. Uh, and uh, interest rates are high, even though Erdogan would like to push them down. Uh, that's part of the problem. But nonetheless, GDP growth overall is is still decent, uh, and so it, you know. I think that there's a strange kind of contradiction at the heart of Turkey where the people of Turkey are very, very entrepreneurial. They're very hardworking. There's a tremendous diversity of, of private sector sort of uh, models that follow big, huge corporations, small family firms, a lot of, a lot of um, diversified investments. So they, they can kind of adapt quite adroitly, the Turks, I should say, to these ever fluctuating economic conditions. So it may be that in the long term, Turkey's sort of rise will not be arrested by this blip, by this economic kind of blip at the moment. As long as Erdogan doesn't interfere that much in the economy, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that the Turks were first unlucky with COVID because, you know, Turkey relies a lot on the, uh, you know, the tourist sector, uh, you know, for hard cash coming into the country, as well as for retirees from Europe buying real estate. However, that collapsed with uh, COVID. However, now, there's something here happening, which is the Ukraine war has been a blessing. Uh, first of all, um, uh, a lot of um, Russians moved to Turkey with their money uh, and they have really, uh, you know, went into Turkey because they can then obtain Turkish citizenships by basically just buying um, properties worth about $400,000. You get the Turkish citizenship within three months uh, and then Russians become Turks, they have bank accounts there in dollar, and it's estimated between 38 to about $42 billion uh, from March all the way until September, six months, uh, you know, roughly about $42 billion uh, poured into the Turkish economy. That pushed the GDP numbers a little bit uh, you know, further because the real estate market recovered a little bit because of the Russian um, you know, uh, I would say like, I mean, uh, influx into Turkey and with their money because they wanted to buy that citizenship, which can give them some 
room for breathing and maneuver in the age of sanctions that's been, uh, you know, slapped upon them by uh, Western powers. What a time we're living in. So let's move from Turkey now to your homeland, Saudi Arabia, <laughs> and from one strong man to another. Uh, I'd like to start with MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the notorious crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. Would you say, Eamon, that his international reputation is finally being rehabilitated uh, properly? Uh, for example, we all saw that he uh, that he that he was there at the World Cup, sitting there uh, with the Qatari Amir Tamim, which was quite funny to see. I think for those of us who've been following the uh, Qatar Saudi Arabia imbroglio over the last five years, and in fact, one of our listeners, Joe Brennan, on Twitter uh, asked for your thoughts on the Qatari Amir, on FIFA President Yanni Infantino and MBS all sitting together uh, during the uh, Qatar versus Ecuador match. Well, what, is that, what does that tell us about, about the ever-fluctuating dynamics of Gulf politics, Eamon? <laughs> Royal politique, man. Royal politique. That's exactly like what it is. What it is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we are dealing with the most pragmatist of the pragmatist, you know, um, uh, people. No, no, the most you know, uh, pragmatist people on the world are the dynastic, you know, uh, princes. They are the ones who actually have to deal with the fact that they have to, you know, straddle, you know, several worlds in order to survive. And MBS is no different. I mean, he has to balance China against Russia, against Europe, against the US. Uh, he has to also balance the conservatives in his country against the liberals, the modernizing agenda against the religious agenda. I mean, he has to really balance so many acts in order to, one, survive. Remember, I mean, he's a young man. I mean, basically, he's younger than both of us by about, what, six, seven years. So we have to deal with the fact that he is a young man. He is a young man that he is going to inherit the crown at any ma at any moment now, um, over the next two or three years, possibly because of the aging uh, effects of, you know, on his father. And at the same time, the fact that um, is, you know, can we say his image of being rehabilitated? I would say you can't rehabilitate an image after what happened in Turkey to Jamal Khashoggi because the narrative is so much against him, uh, even though you and I discussed really what happened. The problem is the narrative was so strong against him that it will take a while for the narrative to actually, you know, uh, change. But what happened here is that in the eyes of the Saudi people, at least, he has been rehabilitated because he came out the other side stronger, able to challenge to some extent, you know, the pressure from the West and from the Americans, um, was able to really steer the country through the COVID uh, crisis and still stick to the diversification of the economy agenda, which is while not going uh, you know, um, really well, it's not going terrible either. It is somewhere there in the middle. Um, and the numbers, you know, speak for themselves. And so I think, you know, he, you know, he, so far the results are mixed, but enough to say that he is out of the danger zone by now. Well, if his domestic uh, position is strong, you know, I, 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 that's that's great, I guess. But I, I, I'm more interested in this international position. So earlier this month, he attended the G20 summit uh, in person, uh, but he did not meet with President Biden, uh, which is, you know, you know, the, the, the president who notoriously as candidate Biden called uh, Saudi Arabia a pariah state. And many observers would say had been particularly ham fisted in his dealing dealings with Saudi Arabia for whatever reasons, you know, I don't know. It seems that the Democratic Party of America has the Saudi Arabia in its sights. I'm not sure exactly why. You probably have ideas about that. <laughs> but but I want to focus more on, on, the, on the sort of um, the spat uh, at the end of the summer. So in July, Biden went to Saudi Arabia and, you know, actually ate humble pie, kissed the ring, met with MBS uh, and left, he says, believing that he received uh, a promise or a commitment uh, to keeping the oil price low, if possible, by uh, increasing supply or at least not decreasing supply. That didn't happen. Uh, and it caused this huge global sort of storm of controversy where I think 
the Saudis actually behaved very professionally in the face of some pretty bratty complaints from uh, Washington, especially the Democratic Party, as they were preparing for their midterm elections. So what's the long-term consequences of, of the current spat between MBS and, uh, and President Biden? Is it just going to drive Saudi Arabia away from America even more, pivot more towards China? What do you think is going to happen? First of all, I mean, you know, no one is saying that the Saudis will ever pivot away from Washington. That's not going to happen. I mean, basically, it's just a rebalancing. Uh, the idea is that MBS wanted to tell the Americans, look, gone are the days when you can pick up the phone from the White House to the king of Saudi Arabia and to say, you know, hey, pal, you know, can you drop the price by $20, $30 per barrel? Thanks. You know, and that's it. You know, the vassal state relationship you know, between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. needed to be adjusted a bit. So instead of the 90-10, you know, MBS is trying to adjust it to about 70-30. You know, there is no breakaway between Saudi Arabia and D.C. It's not going to happen. Um, not in at least the next decade or possibly two. Because the Saudis still need the America's security uh, umbrella, basically. Is that the reason? The main reason? Well, not only that, the Saudis view America as something else completely different. You know, for them, they don't view the Chinese as any alternative to America. They always say, if you ask any Saudi, and I have lots of friends, you know, uh, Saudi friends, like, you know, in position of uh, authority and influence. And what they say is that, look, you know, at the end of the day, we will only start to consider China as an alternative to America when China is transformed from a nation of imitation to a nation of innovation. And at the moment, for as long as America is the innovator and China is the imitator, our bet will be on Uncle Sam. So that and is the- PI the PIF yeah. is putting its money where its mouth is, I guess. The PF PIF continues to invest heavily in American corporations. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I, to some extent, this spat was just superficial, as as all of these Saudi American spats are. The the, the yeah. relationship yeah. underneath the hood is strong. It's it's the real special relationship in the world, I would say. Indeed, <laughs> absolutely. It's just a married couple. Like, I mean, after seventy five years of marriage, I mean, it's gonna happen, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope so. You know, we got a question. Well, in fact, a request from Max West uh, on our Facebook discussion group to asking us to discuss the OPEC production cut and U.S.-Saudi relations. Uh, and this goes on. I mean, because there's there's another OPEC meeting coming up in, I think, five or six days. You know, already, again, the press is reporting. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? You know, I, I, I'd like you to sort of speak a bit, Eamon, to what is going through uh, the Saudi oil minister's mind at any given point when he's uh, thinking of an OPEC meeting and, and, you know, because people talk about Saudi Arabia like they can just unilaterally make decisions, but it is a cartel. I yeah. mean, it is a group decision. And with OPEC Plus, it involves players like Russia, who, of course, have uh, goals of their own. So what what will uh, what will the Saudi oil minister uh, be, who's the older brother of MBS, of course, who will be, uh, will be will be thinking as he prepares for this meeting in a few days? Look, when OPEC ministers, you know, think about all the time are three things, the weather, the economic data and the, uh, you know, the disease data. You know, seriously, I'm not kidding. They think about China and the lockdowns. They think about the weather and is it, is it going to be mild or is it going to be um, cold? Um, and they are thinking about the economic data because all of these, um, you know, three sets of data would determine the demand. Oil is about supply and demand. And that's it. So what happened is that Biden was... Uh, mistaken, or I would say because of his age, kind of compassmentous, like basically he wasn't able to comprehend what MBS and everyone non, else were. Non-compassmentous. <laughs> non <laughs> yeah, non-compassmentous. Maybe, no, I mean, that's, not, I don't want to be uncharitable to an old man. I mean, he's a very nice old man, but, you know, sometimes one yeah, wonders. Uh, old men, like, and I can't comprehend what young men are telling them. And so MBS... <laughs> Isn't it amazing, Eamon? Sorry to interrupt, but isn't it amazing? Like 20 years ago, the problem was that the Middle East was ruled by old men and the, and the, and the West was ruled by young men. Now look at the reverse. It's reverse. Exactly. You look at it. You look at a cat, a cat, a sort of meeting of Biden with the Senate and the, and the House majority leaders or whatever, the House leaders. Whew, they're so old. It's like looking at a, at a cabinet meeting with King Abdullah back 10 years ago. Indeed. Yes. I mean, it, what a reverse. Uh, of positions here, like the the young, the, you know, the Middle East is run by the young and the West is run by the old. Um, although not in the UK, Rishi Sunak is quite young. But 
I will say something. Yeah, I will say something here is that Biden was told by the GCC leaders that we will um, increase production in August. That was in July, in August, and then in September. And then in October, we will review the data. And the three data are, you know, weather, you know, what's the weather going to be, the, the projections, um, the economic projections, and um, indeed the lockdowns in China, the COVID situation in China. So what happened is that they looked at it in October and they thought, oh my God, like, you know, I mean, we don't have very good data. We have to cut the production now. So they said 2 million. That was a very misleading figure because not many people actually are producing what they are supposed to be producing. So the cut really was in effect 1 million, not 2. But nonetheless, the market took it as 2 million. Everyone was angry. Everyone was upset. This is an attempt to bring the price, at the time it was about 80, to bring the price up to 120. In reality, within nine days, within nine days of that decision, actually the price was at the same level as before the decision. And the reason is because these people know what they're doing. They want the price to be at 80. And they knew that if they didn't take that decision, the price projection was to be 65. So actually there was going to be a downward spiral of oil prices going down. And this is why this meeting in December, most likely, you know, because of the current unrest in China, you know, the problem with the production lines there, the, the winter is mild. You know, um, very mild. It's amazing. Exactly. So all and the economic situation is actually heading into recession. The curve is actually kind of scary. All of this point towards low demand, which means that there will be a cut. The cut, uh, you know, I was told is not going to be steep, uh, somewhere between 400 to 900,000 barrels. But they will never mention the word million there in order to avoid another spat with Biden and, uh, you know, his administration. <laughs> OK, well, that's Saudi. Now, let's move on to the to your favorite country in the world, Iran. <laughs> uh, Iran has been in the news a lot uh, for reasons that, you know, I think everyone that listens to Conflicted will know. On the 16th of September of this year, uh, Masa Amini a 22-year-old a woman, was arrested by Iranian religious police for not wearing her hijab properly. And she was brutally beaten, so brutally that she died. Uh, protests broke out around the country. They've been continuing now uh, for over two months. Uh, and estimates, you know, you never know how to how, what estimates to believe, but it seems that around 500 protesters have been killed. Uh, it's pretty bad. Uh, Amir Kamyar on our Facebook discussion group asks, will the current protests in Iran lead to an actual regime change? Now, two months ago when these protests started, friends were asking me what I thought, and I said, sadly, I don't think so. Uh, you know, there's not enough political um, organization amongst the protesters. They're, they're rather disparate. But these protests are lasting and the female dimension is slightly wrong footing the mullahs. It's slightly making them hesitate to use outright force in the way that they did in 2009. What do you think, uh, Eamon? Will these protests cause a, a significant change in the regime? Um, I don't think the regime will be toppled by these protests, but the regime will be significantly weakened. Uh, by that. I mean, the authority, the respect, the fear that the people had for it, the veneration, uh, which means that the next Ayatollah, the next Grand Ayatollah is going to have a legitimacy crisis, you know, is not going to be able to galvanize. And most likely, this next Ayatollah will be Ibrahim Raisi, the current president of Iran, uh, who is most likely going to be the successor. The problem with these protests is that they are leaderless, this is a problem on one hand, but actually an advantage on the other hand. Uh, you know, in the Green Revolution in 2009, Mahdi Karoubi, uh, Mir Hussein Musawi, um, the leaders of that uh, revolution, uh, they were targeted, they were taken, they were put in uh, under house arrest, and that's it. They killed the whole thing. Um, and they killed the revolution. But this one is difficult to target because there isn't a central nerve system here in which to target to stop them. The reality is that it's an anger. It's a festering grievance, you know, that is, you know, uh, there, it's been there for a while because the problem with the Iranian regime is that they misjudge the mood among the people. The people don't want to uh, have a diet of empty slogans and religious fanaticism. 
what they want is really you know, education opportunities and you know uh, economic prospect, which the regime you know seem to be gambling with all the time. And the more the sanctions continue to go on, the more the people realize that the IRGC um, is controlling the economy through the sanctions and has now controlled or is now in control of 40% of the GDP in Iran. And that is stifling small businesses, medium-sized businesses. They are unable to flourish. They are unable basically to have you know, the jobs and the aspirations and the education that they want. So it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing that, you know, in, in season three, we talked about the concessions era within Iran when Westerners, British people mainly had these very, very monopolistic concessions over the Iranian economy, which, you know, brought down the Qajar dynasty and caused, you know, the first wave of revolutionary foment there. And now, weirdly, following the, the Islamic revolution of 79, a similar sort of stranglehold over the economy exists, but in, from within by the IRGC, uh, similarly being, you know, considered by the, by the uh, lower middle class, the business class is very, very unjust. Now, I find it interesting that Masa Amini was a Kurd from a Kurdish region of northwestern Iran. Uh, and so we have Turkey now <laughs> about to invade northern Syria to deal with Kurds there. And IRGC troops uh, and the IRGC rather sending troops uh, into its own northwest to deal with Kurds there. Is this just a coincidence? I mean, this has just came into, up into my, you know, popped into my head, Amen. Has the existence and success of Iraqi Kurdistan legitimately encouraged the Kurds more widely? And is this a problem for both Turkey and Iran? Are they kind of facing the same uh, problem at the, for different reasons in their own countries? I mean, the Kurds, just like you know, other, um, you know, I would say stateless people. I mean, this is where we are having a problem here is that the Kurds in northern Iraq succeeded in building a uh, an admirable civil society there um, and a, a nation that really deserved to have an independence. Um, does that mean that every Kurdish minority deserve um, self-determination? Uh, this question is really plaguing every commentator there, because if we are talking about self-determination for the Turkish Kurds, it's going to be a large chunk of the Republic, like in a breaking away. If we are talking about Syrian Kurds, a large chunk of Syria breaking away. And the same thing with Iran. Uh, and these nations, Syria, uh, Turkey, and uh, Iran, with some degree of complicity with by, by Baghdad's, um, you know, uh, ruling uh, Shia elite, they all don't want, you know, uh, the Kurds to have their self-determination. And, you know, and, and in my opinion, that actually made me more supporting, actually, the Kurdish self-determination because the civil societies they created, not only in Iraq, but even in northern Syria. I remember, um, you know, I saw... Uh, how the Kurds who suffered so much at the hands of ISIS, you know, ISIS brutally murdered prisoners of war from the Kurdish, um, you know, fighters, you know, without mercy. When it, when the roles were reversed, the Kurds were far more kinder to the ISIS prisoners of war. And I remember this is when I said, that those people deserve nationhood just for this, just for the fact that mm -hmm. their mannerism, their way of actually applying, you know, justice is in itself deserving of self-determination. Now, we have, uh, again, uh, at Harkonnen82, M. Agbegbi asked on Twitter, if Iran reached the point where they can produce nuclear weapons, how does that change the landscape in the Middle East? And that's a very broad question, which we have covered on the show many times. But you told me, Eamon, that Iran is very close indeed to achieving the capability of manufacturing a nuclear weapon. How close would you say is the regime away of now? In terms of producing enough fissile material, um, you know, like highly enriched uranium, um, you know, uh, weapon-grade uranium, basically, like, I mean, enough for two devices. Yes, we do. We, ha we have now crossed that uh, threshold already, maybe weeks ago. Um, how close are they to actually taking that material and putting it into, you know, building two devices? Um, it is yet to be seen. It could take months. Uh, but we have now 
reach that level, unfortunately. Um, you know, so we are entering what I call the most dangerous six months um, the Middle East has witnessed since the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So, yeah. So, yeah. so obviously, you know, Israel isn't going to like this. I mean, no. Israel is going to do something about this, especially now that, as seems likely, uh, Netanyahu is back <laughs> again. He's like he's like the Iranians. He's like the end of Kerry for the Iranians. He just keeps coming back. Um, what, what do you suppose Israel will do in the face of the West's or the global community's failure now to prevent this, this eventuality of Iran becoming a nuclear state? There is no doubt in my mind that the Israelis are not going to just act alone. Um, they will create, you know, if they can't get a coalition behind them or if they can't convince the Americans and enough um, European powers uh, to uh, come to with their, to their aid, uh, they will at least create the conditions through which if they act, they will act in a way in which Iran's retaliation will force, you know, Western powers, you know, into uh, intervention. Remember here is that Iran did not do itself favor over the past uh, three months in two um, uh, fields here. The first one is by aiding the Russians in the Ukraine war. That was a mistake. That was a very big mistake. And I think the Iranian denials after that made them, because, you, know, you know, show that they realize how big a mistake it was that they sent these um, you know, suicide drones, which they used against Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, through the Houthis before multiple times. Um, the fact that they used them in Ukraine and the fact that they were falling over Ukrainian cities in Kiev and other places uh, actually, you know, provoked the West into uh, becoming more and more harsher on Iran. And Israel actually used that and milked it, you know, to its fullest potential. That's the first thing. And the second thing, of course, the protests that are taking place there. So, uh, and not to mention the fact that, you know, that the Iranians are in a corner at the moment. They have now three options to get out of the current mess they have in order to unite the people around the, you know, the regime. The first one is uh, go nuclear, which is the least likely. You know, the idea is that to test um, a nuclear device and to announce Iran's becoming, Iran becoming the 10th nation in the world to be a nuclear power. Um, so to say, hey, you know, nuclear glory, that's it. Like, you know, anyone who is in the streets is, you know, um, acting against the best interests of the great Iranian nuclear nation. The second, um, uh, in a way for them to get out of this corner is to actually just pick a fight with a neighbor, you know, you know, pick a fight with Saudi Arabia, pick a fight with Pakistan or Afghanistan with the Taliban. You know, they will try to pick a fight with someone in order to say, look, or Azerbaijan even, because they were, uh, threatening Azerbaijan recently, uh, which upset the Turks very much. And this actually, like, you know, shows how complicated the uh, situation in the Middle East is. Um, and the third option they have, basically, is just uh, capitulate, sign a nuclear deal, and that's it. You know, um, and unfortunately, you know, none of these options seems to be the most viable. And the Iranians are actually desperate at the moment. So, you know, I think the thing is that if Israel attacks Iran in a big way to try to really hobble its capacity to wield this nuclear material properly, um, what is the likely retaliation? What, what powers does Iran have to retaliate? I mean, obviously, it could, it could call on Hezbollah, invade Israel from the north or attack Israel. It could call on Hamas, possibly, from the south, invade Israel. It could call on its Houthi allies to lob more missiles at Saudi Arabia it can itself lob missiles or via its proxies in southern Iraq, in oil fields in Saudi Arabia. This has the potential for a region-wide conflagration. It's a big, big problem, especially uh, given that Saudi Arabia actually itself has access to nuclear weapons. So it's like the problems plaguing the whole world now with a nuclear Russia fighting the, the NATO in Ukraine is kind of mirrored down at a regional level of the Middle East. It's a very dangerous time. And this is exactly why neither the Israelis nor the Europeans want uh, Iran to become a nuclear power, because if they become a nuclear power today, tomorrow Saudi Arabia will become a nuclear power by default. The fact that they have access to 10% of Pakistan's nuclear uh, arsenal um, you know, which is offshore, but in the moment, the moment that Iran become a nuclear power 
through the testing of a viable nuclear device, then Saudi Arabia will transport this capability into its homeland and it will become an onshore nuclear power. And that's it. You know, this will prompt Egypt and Turkey to seek nuclear weapons of their own. This is not what anyone wants. No, <laughs> except maybe the devil. I think he quite <laughs> likes this, this scenario. So that's it. So we've talked about Turkey. We've talked about uh, Saudi. We've talked about Iran. And as we've done so, you, dear viewer, have been putting your questions in the chat. Now, uh, my producers have been curating these questions and they've given me some to ask. Uh, now, this is an abridged version of a question from uh, Eli Byrne. Is there a way to incentivize Saudi Arabia to invest in building and sharing their knowledge of desalination plants, particularly in Africa? This is an extremely interesting question. Yeah. Uh, obviously, as climate change uh, you know, ramps up, Africa, given its population explosion, is going to suffer, suffer from some severe water shortages. Is there uh, an opportunity for Saudi Arabia uh, to charitably or even commercially invest in uh, African desalination plants? There is a company in Saudi Arabia that is actually now um, owned or half owned by the PIF, the Public Investment Fund. Uh, it is called Aqua Power. Aqua Power, ACWA Power. ACWA Power is a, you know a leading um, a Saudi company in terms of integrating uh, solar uh, power with water desalination. So they use solar power as well as renewable energy, you know, such as wind uh, farms in the sea, in order actually to generate uh, you know, uh, sweet water, like you know, drinking water and irrigation water. Um, for example, they built one in Oman and they built one in Al Khafji, uh, which is just on the border between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Uh, these were experimental at the beginning, and it, it was amazing. Like, and I mean, the one in um, Al Khafji was producing 400 um, kilowatts of, um, uh, you know, uh, power, which was uh, generating drinking water for at least 77,000 people uh, on daily basis. Mm -hmm. That in itself shows that the ability to integrate, um, you know, uh, solar, uh, you know, uh, power in order to generate, because you need it during the day. You don't need to keep producing water 24-7. If you just produce during the day enough water for, you know, 50,000 or 40,000 or 20,000, you know, a community, that in itself basically is going to uh, make a lot of difference. They also cooperate with Japan, where there's Japanese, you know, a technology where you have little ships, actually, like, in, I mean, many water desalination um, you know, uh, you know, ships basically like in the such a Japanese thing. I love it. I love <laughs> yeah. the Japanese. I'm a, a mini desalination ship. <laughs> Cute, indeed. <laughs> um, so, so, and since Saudi Arabia is producing about one third of the world's, you know, um, uh, desalinated water, it means that they have now their technology matured and they have, you know, acquired a lot of patents. Someone said to me, like, you know, this is just the patents and. Field of technology, uh, the water desalination technology is about 1,070 patents just in mm -hmm. that uh, field, which they acquired and bought as well as in the developed themselves. So, can they be a leading light in terms of um, saving the in the Middle East, Africa, and parts of uh, Asia from the ravages of wars over water? Possible. It is possible. Hmm, that would be interesting. Uh, uh, certainly, maybe a way for uh, MBS to solidify his internet, his <laughs> rise back into international respectability. So now we have a question from Sam R. Uh, do you think this is a great question? Actually, this is a, a rather provocative question. Do you think that Saudi Arabia will ever actually build Neom? Now we should explain for those who don't know: in northwestern Saudi Arabia, opposite the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, the Saudis are building the city of tomorrow, Neom. Neom is a it's a portmanteau of um, I, what is it actually? Ne, ne, I can't remember what it's meant to mean. What it's supposed to mean? A new day, I think. New Yom, maybe Neom. Anyway, um, and it, it, most most sort of notoriously of late, they released their 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 plans for the line. This long, <laughs> straight, narrow city that's something like 180 kilometers long into the desert. Um, when you see, when you look at pictures of Neom, it does look like something out of Dune or something out of the, the imagination of George Lucas. Eamon, is this 
uh, a typical Middle Eastern white elephant? Is this like Ozymandias's uh, fever dreams in the desert crumbling? Is this just megalomania run mad? Or is MBS going to do it? Is there really going to be a 22nd century city in 21st century Saudi Arabia? Well, I mean, Neom is four things. You know, we have to understand it's four things, really. First of all, there is, um, you know, the Oxagon, you know, basically, which is a port as well as, you know, a trade city, as well as uh, a place for the production of uh, green um, and blue hydrogen and green and blue ammonia. Uh, so there's the Oxagon. That I'm more optimistic about because it has practical, you know, applications for new commercial, energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm. practical uh, commercial applications and right in a very good position, actually. Then you have Trojina, which is, you know, kind of like, an, I mean, um, a skiing slope, you know, uh, you know, in northern Saudi Arabia, in Jabal al which is rumored to be the mountain where God spoke to Moses. You know, basically there. Uh, yes. So, so some American Protestants have made a big deal about this Indeed. in the last decade. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and there are hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic uh, writings there and all of that. So um, it discovered. And then you have uh, Neom, which is the uh, city, you know, itself where you have the uh, commercial, um, scientific, educational institutions. You know, that is like, you know, basically like, you know, you know these three cities, you know, are... Um, um, I would say if about half of them were built or each one achieved 50% of uh, building over the next uh, 10 to 15 years, I'll be very pleased. The line, however, I'm skeptical because, you know, it is humongous and it is, like, you know, basically, like, you know, I mean, out of, like June, as you said, the only reason why I believe that it's not going to be built, you know, in its entirety, but it could actually be because it is actually designed to be built, you know, in stages. So it can actually, we could see maybe like if it is built over 100 stages, maybe we could see five of them only, you know. But even if five were built or five blocks were built, that in itself an achievement. Um, someone asked a question. I said, like, you know, really, what is the line here? And the answer that came to me from someone who was actually working as a project manager in Neom, he said, it's Noah's Ark. And it's modern day Noah's Ark. And I was, you know, wondering what, what did he mean? Like, you know, basically, and he said, well, in time, you will get to know what's, what's the purpose of this place. You know, and so it is, you know, like, uh, is it a city to be a refuge? You know, basically for people with the escape, like, you know, basically the, horrendous effect of the overheat of the uh, climate change, or is it but something... This, but this sounds yeah. more megalomaniacal than I, even I thought. Yeah. This is crazy. This is this is becoming like, well, this is like Elon Musk wanting to send humanity to the Mars. This is like, uh, is MBS basically just a techno bro in his heart? <laughs> He's all a futurist. By the way, my producers, you know, our producers told us that Neom is a portmanteau of Neo Mustakbal, new future. Uh-huh. So maybe, maybe MBS <laughs> is just a, a, a kind of Elon Musk style futurist, uh, and thinks that the, the the destiny of mankind is to populate the galaxy. It is straight from Dune. It, it, it is possible. It is possible. I'm not like I mean discounting it, but nonetheless, I would say that out of the four projects of Neom, three I'm excited about. One I'm skeptical about. So now we have a question from Guy. He asks, is there a growing second Arab Spring occurring in Iran following the killing of Masa Amini? Now, obviously, the Iranians are not Arabs. Uh, only some of them are Arabs. A small minority are Arabs. But uh, we talked about the protests. But do, do you think that uh, what's happening in Iran now is 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 similar to or equivalent to uh, what happened 10 years ago in throughout the Arab world and what we call the Arab Spring? Uh, yes and no. Yes, in that it is the same uh, motivation, the, the lack of opportunities, lack of the light at the end of the tunnel has been switched off you know, by the Iranian regime and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. So people want to, you know, um, have hope and there, there is no hope and they are not being given hope by anyone. The only hope, the only hope that could kill the whole you know, uprising right now is for the Iranians to announce that they have reached a nuclear deal with the Americans and that finally the sanctions will be lifted. That's the only mm-hmm. thing that will appease the Iranian people. Short of that, nothing. 
you know, you know, uh, pick a war with a neighbor, it will make the things worse. Going nuclear will make problem it worse. Is- but the problem is that the IRGC benefits from the sanctions because they're corrupt and whatever, and they're gangsters. And the ideologues at the top of the of the movement still would think of any such deal as as sort of cowardice or compromise, and they're not into it. Exactly, and this is why I always said that. Um, look, wherever there is ideology in the government, that there will be a civil war. So, for example, like in I mean, you know, uh, in Egypt. Uh, the leadership of Mubarak. I mean, Mubarak was a tyrant. I, I don't have any excuse for him, but what an honorable tyrant he was. He decided, you know what? You know, I don't want to be- I'll take care, everyone. Mubarak, <laughs> honorable tyrant. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, there is honor among thieves, you know? So, you know, same thing with tyrants. I mean, so there are bloody tyrants and there are honorable tyrants. He was an honorable tyrant. He decided not to, um, you know, kill his own people. The same thing with Bin Ali of Tunisia. Um, and so they decided to leave. The Iranian tyrants, however, are very different. They are like Assad. They are very ideologically committed. They will not leave. They will fight to the last man to defend the privileges that they have gained in, over the past uh, four decades. And therefore, uh, the collapse of Iran is going to be in a civil war. And this is why many people will tell me, like, oh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Kuwaitis, they would be so happy. And the answer is no. Many people of position of power in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and the UAE will tell you immediately that the last thing they want is a civil war in Iran that will result in millions of people, you know, boarding boats and then coming all the way as refugees, like into the other shore of the Arabian, uh, you know, uh, Gulf or the Persian Gulf, depending on who you talk to. So that's why, you know, uh, you know be careful what you wish for. Uh, Nicholas Mellor uh, on Facebook, our Facebook page, he asks, uh, Eamon, he asks you to cover the Chinese strategy for engaging with the three countries we've discussed tonight, Iran, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia, uh, building on your special Chinese insights um, and also to help many of us. And he's asking you now to do what it is that you do best, helping us to break out from seeing these three countries from our Western prism. So if you uh, put, put us now in Xi Jinping's throne, and how does he see these, these countries, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey? Okay. So uh, for... Uh... China, Turkey is a troublesome necessity um, because Turkey is not exactly like in a playing um, ball with China all the time. Uh, Turkey plays a host to about 400,000 Uyghurs. Uh, Many of them are active in opposition to China, and rightly so, Um, you know, for uh, reasons that we all know in terms of like, I mean, the uh, horrendous, um, you know, oppression that is taking place like in, in Xinjiang province. But at the same time, uh, Turkey knows that it cannot just keep on using the Uyghurs as a bait and as a uh, a pressure card on China. They need also to play uh, a positive role with China in terms of business. So the Turks are, again, just like they are doing with the Russians, sell weapons to the Ukrainians, while at the same time saying, hey, we're going to help you with your uh, energy issues. The same thing with China. Uh, so Turkey is the uh, nuisance, you know, that China have to deal with because it is a useful nuisance nonetheless. Iran is important for China because China, uh, you know, and especially China National Petroleum Company, CNPC, um, or PetroChina, invested heavily in uh, Iran, possibly $25 billion at least, uh, as well as the fact that Iran uh, plays an important role in making sure that China's also investments in Iraq and the oil sector there, 37% of um, the Iraqi oil concessions go to China. So, you know, so they, the oil investments in Iraq and uh, Iran are part of the strategy through which uh, Iran, um, you know, is viewed by China. And actually China is happy with the sanctions because the more sanctions that there is in China, uh, sorry, in, on Iran, the more... Iran is beholden to China and to Chinese interests and to Chinese uh, concessions and conditions. And the Chinese can and the and the Chinese can extract from Iran concessions of their own, uh, and, and they're getting oil from Iran at discounted rates. That's oh, very good for China. Yes, of course. Uh, as you know, and I remember, like in the because I read a lot of like you know, I mean, Farsi articles and Farsi, you know, Twitter and all of that, and so I see how uh, you know when I was monitoring 
China National Petroleum Company, CNPC, when they were, uh, you know, uh, based in Khurram Shahar and uh, Abadan and these places. And they are like, and I mean, you know, doing a lot of like, you know, projects and the oil fields there. And the locals always like, you know, basically talking about everywhere these Chinese people, like in you know, engineers go, the turtles disappear. And so, you know, there were a huge amount of turtles that were disappearing, like, you know, basically like, and this is when they discovered that turtle soup is one of the delicacies that basically that the Chinese engineers like enjoy so much there. So, you know, so basically it's one of those um, eco, um, you know, problems that are caused like, you know, by the oil explorations, the disappearing turtles. Um, but nonetheless, the, and this is one of the concessions that they actually took from uh, Iran. But nonetheless, Iran is viewed by China as an important uh, factor in its energy security, not because of Iran itself, but also because of Iraq and the role that Iran plays in securing the Chinese con- oil concessions in Iraq. Saudi Arabia is uh, extremely important for China. Um, uh, the biggest exporter of energy to China is actually Saudi Arabia, 3 million barrels per day. Um, add to this the fact that uh, the other uh, national oil company in China, the competitor to CMPC, which is Sinopec, um, you know, possess refineries there in Saudi Arabia, and they have a lot of concessions with Aramco. Um, the fact is that Saudi Arabia is the arbiter of prices, to some extent, uh, the fact is that Saudi Arabia is a important stable country that China needs in order to be the bridge, you know, between uh, for, you know, for its uh, you know policies in Egypt, in Sudan, in the African Horn. I know because it's a strange thing, but actually, China has always viewed um, the uh, Saudi port of Jazan, which is on the border with Yemen. Um, as an important stepping stone towards um, replenishing um, and exporting building materials, you know, and everything they need in order to carry out their mega projects in places like Eritrea, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Somaliland, Kenya, uh, South Sudan. Yes. So it but is, I have a question for you then, <laughs> actually, Amen, because if it, now MBS looking at China, is he possibly thinking, well, look, is this a stable country? Because we see these anti-lockdown protests there uh, and we see uh, the geo strategic um, sort of uh, oven cooker, pressure cooker of Taiwan, uh, you know, ratcheting up. I wonder what the Saudis are thinking. You know, maybe they've put too many eggs in a basket that's about to fall apart. Uh, what do you think is going on there? Well, at the end of the day, you know, you have to understand that from the Saudi perspective, um, um, you know, from their, you know, uh, viewpoint, China is the factory of the world. And it still is going to be the factory of the world for many years to come because no other company, uh, no other country in the world got the same capacity as China in terms of production. You know, the production lines there are just massive, huge. Um, and no country can replace them at any given time, any anytime soon. And that is why for them, these protests are transient in their nature. They don't see them as a regime threatening or that it will result in a fall. Uh, in fact, they believe that the Chinese, you know, you, know, you remember the Tiananmen Square events were bloody and brutal. But what followed that was reform. What's happening right now, there will be brutal repression. But what will follow will be relaxation of more rules. You know, it's not going to be um, but of course, like in relaxation on the surface, but beneath the surface, like it's going to be an electronic surveillance state, you know, state of art. <laughs> well, we're going to wind up here. We're reaching the 60 minute mark. Thank you very much, dear uh, listener, dear viewer, for uh, for this in, in inaugural live uh, Q&A session with uh, Eamon and me. Uh, Eamon, I have a, a little a little question, if you could be brief, because I think after the last episode of season three, some people might be interested to know how you and your family are getting on in your new home in an unmentionable and unmentioned <laughs> Middle Eastern country. Uh, how, how are you doing? I mean, I got a lot of very, very very heartfelt feedback from that episode. People were very concerned given the experience you had in Scotland. So I'm sure that everyone would love to know how you guys are getting on in your new lives. I can report that, you know, uh, both myself, my wife and my two kids are extremely happy where we are and that, you know, we have put that episode behind us and that, you know, my daughter in particular is 
experiencing a very, very happy circumstances in her new school with her new friends um, and, you know, her new adopted country. And, you know, she is picking up Arabic very well. Alhamdulillah. That's excellent. <laughs> We're all very happy to hear this, Amen. Our last question, uh, we could end on this last question. Question from Nick. I am assuming, he asked, that there will be a conflicted season four. Any idea how long we will have to wait for it? Well, Nick and all our dear listeners, we ourselves are eager for uh, season four uh, to get off the ground. But just be patient with us. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be better than ever before. Uh, we're putting it together now. We can't talk about it, but it's coming. It will be here before you know it. Uh, believe me, as I get older, time just flies by very fast. So as soon as, as soon, before you can even um, you know think, when is uh, the next season going to start? You'll hear a ding in your phone and there will be. Uh, so yeah, season four is coming and it will be bigger and better than ever. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eamon, my dear friend. It's lovely to see you. And I'm, I'm, I'm to happy to hear you, that you're thriving. And uh, dear listeners, thanks for being with us. And um, I guess that's it. I don't even know. I'm, I'm, producers didn't tell me how to end this thing. Do we just do we just hang up? <laughs> I guess yeah, so. We say goodbye. Um, okay. Eamon, <laughs> we'll speak soon, man. Thank uh, you. All the best. See you then. Thanks very much, Thank everyone. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye.